1: to the show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research.
0: Okay, so I was in Alaska and learned about the permanent fund Dividend. So you may know that Alaska is the only state that has something similar to a universal basic income although it's actually quite a bit different from its history and and how it's transformed over time so i ended up learning quite a bit about it from the talk i gave on economic freedom of alaska and economic freedom is actually very low for the state of alaska even though it's a mixed bag they do not have any sales tax so that was nice when i went to the store Although their prices in a variety of ways are higher, which we're starting to see that around the nation anyway. But especially I stayed in a remote area called King Salmon, Alaska, where everything had to be flown in. And so it was literally $20 for a gallon of milk at the wow. store. I went there and looked at the prices. So it was my wife made Just buy some crab dip, <laughs> uh, some crab dip. And so a small thing of sour cream was $5. Cream cheese was cream cheese was about the same, seven dollars or something, and then a box of wheat thins, kind of the normal, might have been a family size, but it was ten dollars for the box of crackers. So, um, it was it was real uh, prices, but there was no state sales tax. There's no income tax either. So, Alaska scores very high in those areas, but there's a lot of government employment, and so Alaska is very unique in a lot of ways. And so, thought it would be fun to give you a little bit of my insights that I learned from there on this thing that resembles a universal basic income, which is a topic we've talked on and off about on the podcast. And I think will continue to be a discussion item for many years to come if it ever takes off in some way, shape or form. And Alaska might be used as some sort of model for that. So the history was interesting. In the late 1970s, Alaska had a big boom with tax revenue. And oil prices were really high at that time. The pipeline was running almost at 100% and they just didn't even know what to do with the money. And so they thought, oh, well, let's give it back to the people. So it kind of reminded me a little bit of what George Bush did back in the day with we had a surplus for once in 30 years and decided to give it back to the people, which was ridiculous. But that's another story. But here they had a huge surplus of uh, tax revenue generated from oil reserves, and so the idea was, well, we all kind of own the land, so let's let's give it back to the to the people. And so they created a permanent fund, where there was a chunk of money that, that was held, and it was codified in their constitution that this would be used for tougher times in the future. So the the state was actually acting like a responsible human being almost by having. A savings account essentially of this oil surplus money that they had to pay for, you know, future expenses and when tax revenues might be low. And that way it would allow them to keep personal income taxes and sales taxes off the books. So a pretty cool situation to be in. They're the most oil rich state that we have an area, I, I believe, although maybe North Dakota would with uh, today's things would might say something, but I think from a resource standpoint, Alaska is very rich in, in other ways too. I did, did some fishing there. And so other commercial activities will allow their population to not have an income tax, personal income tax probably for a long time. And if they remain fiscally sound, maybe they would, they would never have to go that direction. So They created this dividend that has averaged out to be about $1,000. And so how they're computing it, it's been as high as $3,000, I think, when Governor Sarah Palin was in office. So prior to when 2015 hit, there started to be declines in energy. We had the Obama era kind of reaching back from energy. And the pipeline is running at like 25% of capacity. And they have had some fiscal problems, Um, even a tune of a $3 billion budget deficit, which the way it was originally intended wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have ran a deficit. Uh, They would have just drew from this fund. But so what's interesting about the story is how it politically evolved over time. So you start off in the 80s, they start declaring a dividend and people get used to it and then we reach a point in time where we actually need to use the fund as it was originally intended, where nobody would get the dividend and possibly even draw on the reserves to pay for the current level of spending. But the political willpower was no longer there because people had been getting this dividend. And it's just that's what it means to be an Alaskan. and. Originally, they had it for people who had been long term residents, would actually get paid more of the dividend than people who have been there a shorter period of time. That got challenged and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And everybody who is a citizen for one year, if you've lived in Alaska one year, then you're entitled to this dividend, and also kids uh, the same way. So the family we stayed with had six children and a mom and dad. And so a family of eight on average getting 8,000 a year. And the, some of the arguments that they've made as well, this helps offset some of the higher prices that we have in Alaska. There is, the population there, by the way, is only 700,000 for the whole state. Um, so the Kansas City metro area is around two and a half million, three million, just to kind of put that into perspective. So there's only 700,000 in the whole state. I think around half of that resides in Anchorage alone. And I think it might even be a little over half. And then you've got Fairbanks, I think only had like 50,000. So you've got very small villages and people kind of scattered around some of the other areas um, making up this 300,000 worth of people. And so um, some of the issues that they're fighting today is they they want to make the, the Constitution lock down the dividend now and and change that. And so people are sometimes against that and what that would look like. So let me kind of open it up to my colleagues here to see if you got any questions or points to make. Um, I kind of jumped all over, but that's a little bit
2: of the- I do have a question. History. So who legally owns the oil reservoirs that are being drilled? So yeah, that's, that's a great question that I'm not sure I have the right
0: answer for, but my understanding was that when they- opened up Alaska to be sold for private property rights, The they maintained the mineral rights underneath the oil reserves were reserved, the, and carved out. So of does the
2: state of Alaska own the oil reserves or do private companies who purchased the land own? I
0: think that might be mixed as well, that there might be oil that is drawn from state-owned land as well as private land, Sure. but the I, private I, owners then I, would pay ta- the yeah, tax I, revenue. I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure it. out,
2: is it primarily tax revenue that's cre- that's creating this fund for the dividend, or is it the sales of oil from the state of Alaska yeah. to private companies? It's tax revenue, is, okay. is my understanding, at least is the large portion of that.
3: Okay. So. Really? I was under the impression that it was oil, uh, but... Um like right. from oil
0: sales? Yes. That wasn't my understanding, but I again we might have to do a little research on that when we come back from the second half. I can dig a little bit deeper, but okay. Uh, the from the 1980s it sounded like it was all the tax revenue that came in from the oil. And maybe it's a function of the private companies being able to pull the oil up and then pay, but that wouldn't make sense either because it was my understanding was always the tax revenue that was the big
2: yeah, I'm, I'm trying oh. to, in my the reason I ask is I'm trying in my head to understand to like what the counterfactual world is where there's no dividend. And so if it's a tax revenue situation, well, okay. then all this dividend is coming from some corporation's pockets, basically, whether or not that's good or bad. Yeah. That's, that's just what's that's happening. Yeah. Uh, is that the thousand dollars that each person's getting, that's a thousand less dollars for the company. So that's one possible world. But if it's, gosh, if it's, from the state of Alaska, owning reservoirs and selling oil itself. That's a little more difficult for me to figure out where, who that money is coming from. It's, it's almost like, it's still coming at a cost. It's whatever else could have been done with the the money and the, or the oil. But it's hard to f- even figure out mentally who that who it's coming from, like where, where the money is being transferred from. Because either way, there's a transfer resources going on here. The trick is figuring out who it's being transferred from. Well,
0: and, and you bring up one point that I uh, learned was there's really an intergenerational transfer because the, the fund itself was set up in the 1980 timeframe. And so that money, so to speak, was some other generation's money, which sure. now... The interest and in coming from the fund is now being passed along to every Alaskan that's even moved in and you know during 2020.
2: Okay, so is this the is the dividend coming purely from interest at this point on the, that account? That's my understanding. Okay, all yeah. right. But the the problem is now
0: you've got the government running. A deficit and there's not the political willpower to do what it was originally set up for in the first place. And that was to draw from the fund or drop the dividend to zero. And so the one guy I talked to probably not alone they turned over their check and gave it back to the government because they didn't feel it was right hmm. <laughs> again that would be a big minority of people who would do that but that the fund was originally there like we shouldn't be running a deficit we shouldn't be getting a dividend check if the government's running right. a deficit. So, yeah that makes sense um, so it was from private funds in that respect and the tax revenue it was really a surplus of tax revenue back from 1980 that created this huge uh, fund that okay they're doing the dividend and so there is a, a formula of, you know, splitting it up and declaring the dividend each okay. year. So,
2: yeah. So I, I guess a way to tackle this issue is to start off by looking at the the downsides, because uh, I think the upsides are a little more obvious. And so I don't think we have to talk about them quite as as much. Downsides that I see are basically twofold. Depending on who has the dividend money compared to who would have it if this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so if if Alaska, instead of having this uh, leftover slush funds, freed up those funds and maybe gave them to everyone all at once or gave them to the original owners of the lands, wh- whoever, uh, whichever is the case. One thing that's going to be different is depending on who gets the money or if it comes from tax revenue, this also affects it. Different prices are going to go up differently. But it's, it's kind of hard to track out how that happens. And so some people will say, well, because they have the freedom dividends, they have, or not freedom dividends, that was discussed in the U.S. Because they have this uh, dividends, prices are higher. But that might not actually be true. So an, if, if, for example, all the money in the dividend was going to a corporation, you know, if corporate profits are higher, then they pay their workers more. This is like standard macroeconomic analysis. You know, as your pr- worker marginal products goes up, you're going to pay them more. So workers still end up with more money. Maybe capital owners in different states want to end up with some more money too. But for the most part, I actually don't know that prices would be terribly different than they are right now. It's mm-hmm. at least hard to hard to tell how they would be. And so I don't know if that's true. But one uh, negative consequence that is certainly true, I think, is that this is, is going to create some weird incentives. In other words, if you have $1,000 every year. I think you have less incentive to find something like a stable employment over time. Now that might not be quite enough. To, That's what I was to, thinking. I, to disincentivize. Yeah. What, what, what do you think, Justin? I was trying to figure out where the
0: money was coming from. And the second half will will definitely hit that a little harder because that that needs to be determined. But I, I kind of thought that the dividend was so low on average a thousand that the disincentive effect, you know, our people, I immediately went to do my friends here have a large family, partly because they get an extra check from it. And so, but when you start to look at the overall picture of um, if you need, let's just say 30,000 to live on $1,000 on average, isn't going to be a big move in that direction to deter you from finding gainful employment is what I'm thinking, but That's just kind of my personal gut feeling on that level. And that's where I think the discussion is a lot different than a universal basic income where we're trying to give maybe some poverty level of income at a minimum.
3: I think Alaska does have pretty bad rates of poverty too. And I think they rank pretty low as far
0: as states go in terms of like family stability. And I know there's a lot of drug problems. Again, I didn't look at the data to know if it's any worse than Kansas City, but uh, it sounds like there's a decent meth problem and other drugs too. Yeah, which and marijuana was completely legalized. And and it, when I was there, folks, they don't see much daylight in the in the winter, and now it's all daylight. It's almost 24 hours of of light of some sort. So I thought that's maybe where the marijuana and alcohol and uh, might help uh, take your mind off some of the extreme environment that you're living in.
2: Yeah. I was going to say it's snow is- and
0: cold. I mean, minus 20 degree temperatures, you know,
2: that's that's the question is, certainly <laughs> on the margin, it disincentivizes work and incentivizes bad behavior. On the margin, just meaning at least a little bit. Yeah, maybe. at least it's a little a, bit. Some, some amount it. of it. So. Uh, but it seems unlikely to me that it's like we could explain like rampant, and I don't know if this is the case, if they do have it, but it sounds like there's some backing, but rampant drug abuse or, you know, total family structure issues or high rates of poverty Gosh, it seems so unlikely that a thousand dollars a year guaranteed could do that. Maybe it can, but it, I just am curious how much of these, you know, effects are based on that.
3: I would suggest that probably just the terrain of Alaska selects for riskiness. Yeah, more than a thousand dollars a year. Knowing people that live in Alaska, uh, you know, it is, it really is kind of like the last frontier in America.
0: Right. Well, a bartender up there gave us this quote that we'll wrap up the first half on and come back with some more information in the second half. But uh, he said, in Alaska, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. I'll leave you with that to ponder.
1: By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics.
0: The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a college credit now available for high school students where you'll learn some microeconomics and get some college credit at the same time. These credits are transferable to any university that you go, but we hope that you'll consider Ottawa University as a great place to go for your college experience. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Justin or Russ today.
1: Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at org.
0: All right, welcome back. Well, we did a little research. Uh, I wouldn't say we're experts at this point on this, but I think we got our arms around the property rights issue that Peter astutely brought up right away. And so it looks like Alaska still owns the land and a large part of it anyway and leases out the right to drill for the oil. Yeah. So the state of Alaska is collecting a lease payment for the land, but then they also have a 35% tax. And this is kind of a interesting structure of risk sharing that we'll just talk briefly on. So the government has kind of a share of the production in a sense through the 35% tax. And that's where the large Tax surplus occurred in the late 70s and 80s when oil prices were um, at some of their all-time highs, that they were uh, bringing in a lot of money, and so that system uh, went down substantially when oil prices fell to like $40 a barrel, and so that caused in 2015 I think it was the state of Alaska to run some deficits and the fund was then kind of questionable that they were using it even according to the way they had their constitution. So by using a lease payment, there's a risk sharing there that they don't have to make the lease super high for the oil companies because then the oil companies may not wanna lease it, right? Because they'd be taking on so much risk if oil prices go down or they don't pull as much out of the ground as they were expecting. And so having a little bit lower lease payment with a 35% tax, now allows both the private company and the government to kind of risk share a little bit in the production of oil. You got anything else you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, so it sounds like the uh, the other drawback that I was looking for, but I, I didn't have enough information to turn out, is that by the governments, and I think there's some federal property too, uh, so state-owned land, federal-owned land, by the government holding on to land, they're essentially preventing People who have more valuable uses and configurations for for the lands to use it the way that would be the most valuable, and so in, in a market, in theory, you know, barring uh, big issues, the person who values an asset the most will buy it because if you can do something more valuable with an asset than someone else, you can make a profit by buying it from them. So it's possible that there's ways that you can drill the lands, or you know. Alternative drilling systems that maybe are impossible with the government ownership that private companies could have, could implement if they owned the lands. And so that's maybe the other big drawback is that there's basically potential revenue generation, potential profit, potential oil harvesting that's not occurring because it's basically illegal for, for private companies to purchase the lands. But in general, I will say based on the, the structure of the scheme, this is one of the like less objectionable government programs that I've seen is that if it's the case that this federal land is going to be federal lands, regardless of what Alaska wants to do, the government just says, this is federal lands. You can't sell it to private companies. Then giving money back to the people it seems to be a, a, a decent sort of program.
3: Yeah, I think, look, if the state owns the land, right, if they are the firm and if they are realizing a profit from what's from their ownership, and I think by far the most moral thing they could do with that money is give it back to the residents who are supposed to be, you know, the people that the state is representing. I know if you look at the history of the dividend, part of the, re- the argument for establishing the dividend was that people felt that the state inefficiently and very quickly spent the $900 million that they got from auctioning off some land in the late 60s. So part of it was the citizens saying something like no if you're our government you know that that money needs to come back to us we need to set it aside for the people. So I'm wondering since this is very this is towing up against universal basic income and some people do suggest that this is a perfect example of a universal basic income that can work why don't we think that this is generalizable why do we think that well, this works, you know, I take it that the argument is something like, you know, only in Alaska, Um,
2: but why only in Alaska? I think a big piece of the issue is that our federal land in the rest of the United States probably put together does not generate enough revenue to make up for the massive deficit that our our government uses to create the revenue in the first place. In other words, if you wanted to generate a universal payment that reflected the value of government's property to society right now, it seems to me that that payment would be negative. Uh, in, other, <laughs> in other words, we, we would have to tax people, and, that, and that's exactly the truth. Which is what we do, yeah. And. and This maybe doesn't have to be the case, right? Like a very simple way to make government land, or make government property rather, more productive compared to spending is just not spending ridiculous amounts of money. Mm -hmm. If government didn't run a deficit and instead like just imagine all the national parks had a little entry fee. And, you know, the government didn't run a deficit. You collect all that entry fee money, you spread it out across the United States, maybe it's two cents a person. I don't know what it ends up being. But the point is like that, that's conceivable. The problem is that the upkeep of those parks and the other things that we spend money on, mostly the other things, but even the upkeep of the park and the park service probably far outweigh any sort of revenue we would ever make on our resources that the government owns.
0: Yeah, definitely. There was other inefficiencies I saw over the place. The little airport, for instance, had 10 TSA agents for nine people taking the flight. It just reminded me of, you know, some of the weird circumstances you run into where when the government doesn't have that profit motive to try to keep things efficient and in check. I think you kind of nailed it, in my opinion, the even with this oil money and tax revenues to pay for other things, the incentive structure is still there for government to grow and without a binding budget constraint, that's exactly what's happened in Alaska. And the the only interesting thing I think is that the, the people have an interest in it through, through this somewhat maybe historical accident of how things evolved in the eighties. And now they have a a more rightful grab at keeping politicians in check through this dividend than what otherwise goes on.
2: And I will say there is something a little more sinister that's a problem rather than just that our federal government runs a deficit. One thing that you could easily jump off and say is, well, you know, that's easy. Like We, we could do this pretty easily. We can make, first off, okay, you could say, okay, Peter, well, let's cut spending down to a very reasonable, small level. And here's what we'll do. We'll just one time grant the government ownership of a bunch of the capital in our country and that capital generates some revenue and we can use that revenue generation and give it out to everyone. There's a name for a system like this. It's called socialism or social <laughs> ownership of the means of production of capital. <laughs> and you know, maybe you think, "Oh, Alaska's different because it's land, not capital." You can do the same thing with the land. I don't care what which resource you're using, but the point is that problem that exists in Alaska where companies can't buy the land and use it for a more valuable purpose it might not be a very big deal because this is only one industry in one state. And it's actually hard to imagine that land having more valuable use than what it's doing right now. It probably isn't that big of a deal. But when you start doing this on a very large scale, what you're going to have to start doing is making a lot of industries basically public property. And when you do that, you lose the good features of market competition. You lose innovation. You lose the knowledge communicated by real market prices. You lose incentives to do things properly. And so that's I actually think even a more fundamental issue with making this uh, a widespread thing is the larger that you make it, the more you lose those features of the market that you actually need for your country to succeed. This is why the Soviet Union, despite making property and lands and everything, capital and lands, we'll say, you know, they've made it all public property. They were able to produce a lot of stuff in the Soviet Union, but it didn't end up benefiting the consumers. That's because they lost the good features of the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on making the right stuff. So
3: I think at this point... Anybody who was either from Alaska or lives in Alaska stopped listening to this podcast a long time ago (laughs) because they probably destroyed the device that they were listening to. (laughs) I think people in Alaska, this is actually something that everyone's an expert on because it's such a, a big issue in the in the state about what the dividend is this year and how it's going to be distributed. What was I going to say? Oh yeah. So my My question earlier was, you know, what do you say to somebody, you know, if our position is, well, it only works in Alaska, right? Only in Alaska. Uh, I think another thing you could say, though, is not even in Alaska, right? Because one of the things, what's the number that a lot of UBI people have been putting out for what a UBI ought to be? It's not $1,000 a year. No, right. It's like $1,000 a month. month, And so you can say, look, not only does this only work in Alaska. It actually doesn't even work in Alaska. Even when the state owns the oil rights, it still is not enough to provide the amount of funds that you are demanding. You know, for the entire nation.
2: Yeah, yeah. In Alaska, to have a thousand a month, assuming that the it balances out to be around a thousand, which it looks like the numbers basically this year was about that. Sometimes it's higher. I mean, a, a, a year. year. That's yeah, a thousand a, year, year, thousand a year, year. A thousand a year to make it monthly. I mean, this, this is pretty simple math. You just have to multiply times 12 the amount of resources, the value of resources that Alaska would have to actually own to do that on an, a monthly basis. <laughs> yeah. uh, and considering all the oil in Alaska is very valuable if you add up all its value, uh, it's very unlikely that the federal government's going to come by something that's 12 times more valuable. For and then multiply that by the number of residents in the United States compared to Alaska. I I mean, I think Justin's right. This certainly isn't universalizable uh, just from a back-of-the-envelope math calculation sense.
0: Yeah, and and let's, I guess, bring it out that any sort of UBI is really closer to a negative income tax. I mean, if we give somebody making $200,000 a year a $13,000 a year payment, they're really, with an income tax still in place, paying that back with a higher rate if they're in a 30% income bracket or whatever it is. So it still boils down to a tax and transfer program. But the thing I like about the UBI direction is its transparency. And so you have a very specific amount that's coming from federal government that suffers from the knowledge problem, as Peter was bringing up, of that Hayek alerts us to, and we simply have them as a monetary transfer mechanism with having some sort of universal basic income. My requirement, though, to move that direction would be to dump the other tax and transfer programs, which is a political football that will probably never happen in my lifetime. So I'm just a dreamer. And that's what it's interesting to look at this Alaska case, because you do have the funds coming from a specific source. So I think it identifies the tax and transfer concept as opposed to real resource being used in the form of oil uh, being extracted from the ground and, and the money being shared that way. It's it's fundamentally
2: different. Yeah, one nice thing that I your comment brings up that I, I haven't thought of it this way before, but one nice thing the Alaska example highlights is actually our, our government programs, whether transparent or not, are funded this way, like at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is, all the revenue that government has it's using by taxing specific resources for the income tax. It's taxing your resource of labor, right? You have a fixed amount of time in the day, you have some energy, you have some brains, you add those things together. That's a valuable thing that can create valuable things, just like oil can create valuable energy. You know, there's taxes on capital gains. And so that's taxes on machines, wealth, uh, you know, the structure of companies, a little bit more ethereal, like that property tax, that's a tax on land. And so all government programs are essentially uh, pulling from different markets, capital markets, labor markets, markets for lands. They're just doing things that are a little bit less transparent. So I agree with Russ that that I I like the transparency, but the real problem, and I think this is one place where libertarians maybe hurt their message a little bit. The real problem isn't so much the transfer. That does matter. It is kind of like it, it makes, it bothers me that we're taking money from one person and giving it to another person. So that's the transfer aspect. That, that is maybe an issue and maybe you have a moral problem with taxing someone at a really high rate. But a, a huge problem in the background is we're actually screwing up by taking ownership of capital markets and land markets and labor markets. We're screwing up prices in a bunch of different markets. Just like in Alaska, you know, the the price of land out there is a price that we don't have access to because it can't be bought and sold. Our ability to buy and sell labor and capital and lands in the U.S. proper is also a little bit fuzzy, because Mm -hmm. we're not actually buying and selling land labor capital, we're buying and selling land labor and capital with this additional tax leech on the side of it. You know, you can't just buy the pure capital good, you're buying capital good and a tax responsibility. And so that there's uh, not only a transfer problem, but there's a screwing up of resource prices problem going on. And that in the extreme is really like a, a, a very large issue, the issue of the Soviet Union. Yeah. These distortions eventually can lead to business cycles, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, by by messing with prices, you invest resources the wrong way and industries boom and those booms can't last because the funds were put in the wrong place because the prices were wrong. And so, you know, the investment projects fail and people lose their jobs. Yeah, Yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah, and that's detrimental for other long-term decision-making. And so that, that brings us to the point where if we... The things that we espouse about having local property rights decisions in that space allow you to best invest those funds, which then should lead to greater growth opportunities, which means more income, which also would mean more income tax, by the way. Uh, So uh, having that government function be more limited can allow it to function a lot better, I think, in a sense, but that is part of that cultural shift that I don't think is possible. I just, I wanted to comment one thing with Peter that I actually am on the forcing the transfer side. That doesn't bother me at all, honestly. I've always been okay with a progressive income tax. Now let's talk about the levels. That's a completely different story. So the fact that a higher income person pays proportionately more of their taxed than a poorer person. That doesn't bother me in the slightest. So, and what I'm saying is if you're making $200,000 a year, the next dollar that you earn gets taxed at 30%. Whereas if you're making $30,000 a year, the next dollar that you earn only gets taxed at 10%. I'm totally okay with that type of system. Well, I'll
3: be out of the, the
2: club, then. <laughs> <laughs> and to a certain extent, I'm out of the club too. Uh, you know, uh, we've we've had the render on Caesar podcast where you've heard my view that there's a cer- certainly some, you know, in my view, a biblical moral scope for government to make decisions like that. But that doesn't mean I have to like the transfers either. And so yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I think you'd agree with me here too, Russ, that what I don't like is that actually a lot of our transfer payments are from like lower middle class people to bureaucrats living in Washington DC. Exactly. Yes. That's a transfer that I find very distasteful. Yeah. And one that I think probably, if you look at the founding, you know, documents of yeah. the country and other things, probably actually illegal in some like way that you could, you know, reasonably argue. So uh, I Think that a lot of people are probably with you on it's not such a bad idea to take from the poor and give to the rich all the time, or other way around, <laughs> uh, to take from the rich and give to the poor all the time. Some people are probably on that track with you, but one place where we can all unify is where we shouldn't be taking from, from the, the lower middle class <laughs> and giving to like DC bureaucrats. Yeah. I, I mean, at least we can all agree that that transfer payment doesn't yeah, sound and, quite right.
0: And I hope that's what we continue to highlight with the gortney Institute is that that that's in large part what does go on if we want to call it corporate welfare or Big government and big business playing kissy face with each other. I mean that that's in large part what what happens unfortunately and the only answer to that is to continue to fight for a more limited government staying within the scope of some some basic things.
3: Murray Rothbard at one point when he was talking about the abolition of slavery and he was also talking about being a libertarian extremist and he said look if you argue for the gradual elimination of slavery you are never going to get the elimination of slavery. If you argue for the immediate elimination of slavery, you will get the gradual elimination of slavery. (laughs) And he was making a similar point about taxes and government. If you argue for a slightly less large version of our government, you're going to get the large version of our government. If you argue for... libertarian conception of government, maybe you'll get a slightly less large version of our government. So that's why I'm, and I tend to think that yeah, it's
0: a negotiation, right a negotiation type tactic basically
2: yeah. is. And, and if, if I were hired as, for, for the record, if I were hired as Joe Biden's economic advisor and I was <laughs> p- pushing the button on tax rate, my my button that I would push would be zero. Uh, I think that that's the the best tax rate for society. I, I think that there will be much more prosperity with zero than anything else. So I, I not only agree with wanting and, and the gradual and having to this... force the extreme, but I actually prefer uh, the extreme. I, I, w- I would like the zero income. Is tax. that
0: relying with a, a state
2: with a sales tax on? or uh, just, just no taxes yeah, anywhere? Just, just zero across the world. Yeah. Well, uh, they could still operate. I don't know how they're going to get money, but they could volunteer, <laughs> I guess, you, <laughs> you know, it's, voluntary contributions. It, it, it's, they're civil servants, right? Come, come volunteer. You don't get a paycheck or resources, <laughs> but you can organize, I guess, something like that.
0: The, the richer society gets, you're, you're not as far-fetched as I know you were trying to be, but uh, there is a lot of good volunteers, and that's kind of where private organizations and private charities can yeah. substitute the role of many government And, and they so yeah, are not too far off the, with that. But, but
2: of, the other <laughs> issue is that the richer society gets, actually, the more valuable it becomes for politicians to yes. you know, tax 1% of wealth. If yes. you can put a 1% wealth tax on a very rich society, you're, you're pretty well off. I think a lot of a lot of this is why to, to wrap up my thoughts on the Alaska situation, I don't hate the dividend payment. And the reason I don't hate it is because my belief is the alternative would not be that uh, the state sells off the oil lands private companies who do the best thing possible with it. In my view, this the alternative is to what happened in history, that the government gets $900,000 this year and they blow it on a bunch of useless projects and people end up with nothing. <laughs> so I, I think to, to wrap up, that's actually why I don't hate, you know, as things become more valuable, there's more political incentive to take them and then later they'll be squandered. So, you know, if, if we're going to squander resources and, and do the second most valuable thing with them, I'd rather people choose the second most valuable thing than politicians, I guess. That's kind of my final thoughts on it. I prefer that we not have government ownership of property at all. But if we have it, I think that it's better in people's hands than, than in bureaucrats' hands any day of the week. Yeah. So the
3: dividend isn't terrible, but it's also not a good argument for UBI generally. I
2: think that that's a good place to wrap yeah. up.
0: Yeah. 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 It's very unique to Alaska's circumstances. And yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this episode then. Thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. And if you want to tell some folks about our podcast and help spread the word or otherwise uh, give us a ranking on your podcast app, that helps people find us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.